0: we should emphasize that the benthic fuel cells are very low power they're battery level but if you're an oceanographer and you want to deploy something a thousand meters deep thousand kilometers offshore mm-hmm. and there's no outlet you can certainly do a lot with one watt
1: This is EnergyCast, and I'm Jay Dauenhauer. Today we're talking about benthic batteries harnessing the ocean's natural chemistry to produce energy in some of the most remote places on Earth. We've discussed opportunities to make energy from bacteria in the past. As you know, the path to cellulosic ethanol involves putting organisms to work to break down complex molecules like those found in wood into simple sugars that can be converted into ethanol. We've also explored using biology to produce pure hydrogen as a waste product, which is certainly not wasteful to us. Today we'll explore how biology plays an important role in forming the basis of a unique fuel cell. Our guest says he and his team have been working on this idea for nearly 20 years. Essentially, the fuel cell, much like a battery, is made up of an anode and a cathode. The anodes are placed into the mud on the sea floor, which is oxygen-free and full of microbes. They form a biofilm on the anodes and transfer electrons to the cathodes, which are facing the water and very full of oxygen. The process creates electricity up to about a watt per square meter. It's not much power, as you heard our guest say in the cold open, but it's certainly enough for applications like sensors at the bottom of the ocean. You drop a hundred of these fuel cells into the ocean to power hundreds of sensors, and you're one step closer to us understanding one of the great frontiers. I used to love that show SeaQuest back in the 90s. The 21st century,
0: mankind has colonized the last unexplored region on Earth, the ocean.
1: It starred Roy Scheider from Jaws and depicted a 21st century where we decide to colonize the oceans instead of space. Who knows, maybe a scaled-up version of this technology could power undersea civilizations. But even if we don't make power plants out of these fuel cells, their greater advantage is their durability. Unlike batteries, are always recharging on seawater and organic matter. And since their design is essentially solid state, they're impervious to the pressures of the ocean. Scientists have also worked out a way to set these cells on the seafloor without expensive submarines or drones. During the interview, I ask if they can withstand 5,000 meter depths, which they can, but most experiments have been about 1,000 meters or a little over half a mile down. (laughs) It reminded me of one of my favorite SNL skits where Captain Nemo, played by Kelsey Grammer, is trying to explain that they are not in fact 20,000 leagues deep. All right, all right, just everyone, please, just sit down and take out a piece of paper. So if this is the surface and... The Nautilus is 200 fathoms below, then how far down are we? 20,000 leagues under the sea. Why
0: do you keep saying that? Well, because before you said we were 20,000 leagues. I know what I said, <laughs> but that doesn't mean you have to keep saying it.
1: Close huh. to shore, my guest says these fuel cells are good to go in freshwater as well, with particular promise at wastewater treatment plants. Who knows, maybe these plants will be producing power as well. Our guest today is Dr. Lenny Tender, research chemist and project lead at the Naval Research Laboratory. Yes, we're back at the lab for the second of four guests I had the pleasure of meeting. Dr. Tender has been working to perfect his benthic microbial fuel cell, and the results have been very promising. During this visit, as we were leaving the interview, I asked about a peculiar building across the parking lot with what looked like to be a bunch of round Doppler radars on top. I was told it's not part of the lab and no one ever asks. That's pretty wild, considering they're working on nuclear fusion projects that we do know about. I say all of this is an excuse for the audio, which breaks down in a few places. I blame it on the experiments across the parking lot. I hope you enjoy my conversation with Dr. Lenny Tender. We're here with Lenny Tender, microbial electrochemist with the Naval Research Laboratory. And Lenny, first things first, tell us what a benthic microbial fuel cell is?
0: Well, it's a device that generates power in the marine environment to operate oceanographic sensors. In its simplest form, it's simply two electrodes, one embedded in marine sediment and one positioned in overlying water. And if you connect those two electrodes with an external circuit, you will generate electricity through the circuit. You will acquire electrons from the electrode that's in the sediment, and they'll pass through the circuit, and then they will go on to the electrode that's in overlying water be passed on to oxygen, which is in overlying water.
1: The anode in this battery is your soil or sediment. You say it essentially comes from living matter. I take it that the fuel cell works best when the anode digs into the dirt?
0: That's correct. The anode has to be embedded in the marine sediment. A key factor of how the fuel cell works is the microorganisms. Mm -hmm. If you just put graphite electrode in marine sediment, it'll be colonized by organisms that are residing in the sediment. They'll form a film. We call it a biofilm. And within that biofilm... Film. There are certain organisms that have evolved a really incredible capability that we refer to as extracellular electron transport. Most organisms, including ourselves, live by ingesting something called electron donor. In our case, glucose, and then we strip the electrons off of that donor. Another word for donor is fuel. And then you have these electrons that are left with low energy that have to be passed out. And I always describe this as like a water wheel. Most organisms, ourselves and bacteria, use electron acceptors to pull electrons away that can actually diffuse into the cells and then become reduced and then diffuse out. And so In our case, we breathe in oxygen, the oxygen gets reduced and essentially we breathe out carbon dioxide. But the organisms that colonize the anode of the fuel cell, they actually can pass their electrons out of the cell and then pass them on to something that's outside the cell body. To do that, these cells have two different membranes. But that aside, those microbes colonize our electrode. They digest the organic matter in sediment. They get the high energy electrons. They they use up some of the energy, not all of the energy, and then they pass their electron right onto that graphite anode. And so the graphite anode acts like a current collector. Every time an electron gets passed onto that anode, it gets zipped through the circuits to the cathode. And on the cathode, there's an analogous process that occurs where organisms in marine waters have evolved the ability to extract electrons from solid surfaces. They're actually pulling the electrons off of a surface. And so that's exactly what happens at the cathode. And so those electrons get pulled out, they get passed on to oxygen, and the total process is the oxidation of organic matter at the anode coupled to reduction of oxygen at the cathode. Both reactions catalyzed by microorganisms but that net reaction is thermodynamically favorable so that means as the electrons go through the circuit you can power something with it. You can harvest energy. But to go back to your question yes, (laughs) yes, the electrode that's in the sediment one of the key challenges is, is getting it into the mud and it has to be isolated from the oxygen in the overlying water. And So we have worked out a method that we can deploy our devices and they assume that position automatically.
1: Okay, so like sand, loose sediment like that probably
0: wouldn't be as good because you could get water in there, right? Well, you get oxygen in there. So surf zones are very permeable and have a lot of oxygen in them. And they're also challenging because they're very dynamic. It's hard to keep anything positioned there. But for most of the environments, harbors, rivers, lakes, ocean, we've deployed all over the world. As long as there's appreciable organic matter in the marine sediment, organisms that are naturally residing in that sediment are going to deplete any oxygen that passively diffuses into the sediment. And that's good for us. It makes that zone we call anaerobic. So right. when we put our electrodes in there, <laughs> the only viable electron acceptor is not oxygen, but the electrode itself. Well, different marine environments are different, there's a consistency in the type of microorganisms that pop up on our electrodes. They're pretty ubiquitous.
1: Earlier, you mentioned something about the anode developing biofilm yes. naturally. It seems to me like what you're trying to do is encourage it to create that film so the anode is always covered with the biofilm,
0: right? Yeah, it's actually unavoidable. When I first proposed this idea, I was challenged by people who say, well, it's going to foul but that's what we want because it's our bacteria that are acting like the electrocatalysts. And that's really what a microbial electrochemist does is study the electrochemistry of microorganism. In certain instances we treat them as electrocatalysts. The amazing thing about them is that they self-assemble, they're living, so they're constantly self-repairing. They just keep on going and going and going, so no one's really tested the upper limits. I've run devices for two years and they generate as much power as they did early on and show no indication of depleting.
1: You said that this bacteria is common pretty much everywhere. But are there situations where you may
0: bring a starter family with you? Even if you started a biofilm in the laboratory, once you bring it to the real environment, the microbes that are in that environment are more fit to live in that environment and they'll probably outcompete and displace. Although A lot of organisms, once you're on the electroaccession, is nine-tenths of the law. Sure. It's hard to displace them, and so there is that tension. Sure. You've
1: tested this equipment at wastewater treatment plants, which can be super rich in organic matter for anybody who's ever worked in one. What function do you see this technology being used at those, at wastewater treatment plants? But
0: essentially, if you take a tank of wastewater, they also do anaerobic digestion over there where they get the organisms to break down the organics, forming methane, and then they use the methane to generate electricity using turbines. So, using microbes as electrocatalysts. Fuel cells. This is a vibrant area of research. Some small companies are really pioneering this area, and they've identified waste streams that are really good to break down from the perspective of microorganisms that are very expensive to treat. For some reason, a confectionery, chocolate factory generates lots and lots of waste, and for them to introduce that waste into the municipal waste stream, they get charged an incredible amount because it's very hard to break down.
1: I've heard about that. I've heard barbecue sauce places yes, are like that too. and, yeah. uh, and
0: breweries. Yeah. Right. So, those industries, the microbial fuel cells are appearing to do the wastewater treatment on site.
1: The wastewater plants versus going into the depths of the sea, yeah.
0: does it matter if the water's saline or not? To a first approximation no. we've generated power here in the Potomac River, which is brackish water. We should emphasize that the benthic fuel cells are very low power. They're battery level. We generate typically on the order of 100 milliwatts or so, and we are aspiring to get up to a watt. But if you're an oceanographer and you want to deploy something a 1,000 meters deep, 1,000 kilometers offshore Mm -hmm. and there's no outlet and you don't want to go back to replace the batteries. You can do a lot with 100 milliwatts. You can certainly do a lot with a one watt. You know, oceanographic sensors can make all sorts of complicated, sophisticated measurements, process the data and even get the data out wirelessly.
1: Yeah, we had the Benthic battery on the ocean floor. You tethered it up to something that was floating on the surface, right?
0: The demonstration we did here, we had a buoy that had a weather package on it. The Benthic fuel cell acted as the mooring and then the mooring cable that actually also transmitted the power. And then every five minutes So it was a radio transmitter, all powered by the organisms in the mud and the water. And that radio transmitter sent the data to my office here. And where was it? It was right here in the Potomac River in Washington, D.C.
1: Now, I saw an interview where you suggested that we could use this technology for making fuel from CO2 in the atmosphere. You're talking to a guy who once ran a carbon capture and storage association back in Texas. I'm all for what we call carbon capture and utilization. Yeah. How would this work
0: for this technology? It's a concept, but microorganisms do fix carbon dioxide. There are certain organisms called auto that will take CO2 and then convert it to biomass as they grow. And how would this be different from plants? <laughs> In our case, we would use these cells as electrocatalysts. So if you had a renewable source of electricity, like wind or solar, we could provide these organisms electrons from the electrode and they would take up the electrons and carbon dioxide and form biomass and they would just grow and grow and grow. The notion of this is that you could form a liquid fuel precursor without ever going into the ground and pulling up more fossil fuels. So you taking the CO2, microbes will be converting it to a fuel precursor using sunlight or wind as the energy and then we can use that as a portable fuel. That's the notion, it's called microbial electrosynthesis.
1: So you wouldn't need to concentrate CO2 with advanced carbon capture equipment, it would pull CO2 out of the atmosphere like it would normally for photosynthesis, right?
0: I would even say that because we know our cathodes work in the marine environment that we can pull the CO2 out of the water.
1: Okay, I like how this battery can function in the deepest depths of the ocean, we talked about that. Did you have any challenges or make any unique changes from your initial design. Have you tested it in 5,000 meter depths? Not
0: 5,000 meters depth, but we've operated around 1,000 yeah. meters or so. We've done experiments off the coast of California in what's called the Monterey Canyon. There, you have to rely on remotely operated vehicles with sophisticated research vessels to actually bring it down and get everything in position. We've been spending the better part of the last two years or so, and have been very successful in engineering it now that you can just walk right off of a ship and it assumes the right position with that electrode in the mud and the other electrode not water.
1: Was there anything as far as making it tougher, being able to withstand pressures that deep? Seems like it's a pretty solid state, right? Yeah, so. at
0: the heart of it, it's just graphite electrodes yeah. and a couple of cables. There's no moving parts, no depletable components. You touch upon something that's interesting is that batteries are fairly reliable. They have a limited lifespan. They deplete. And that's what we're trying to get away from. We want our instruments to run indefinitely. And how long could you set it, you think, in the ocean? Barring any issues like hurricanes, I had devices off the coast of New Jersey when Hurricane Sandy came through and I just got lost. But barring that, the microbiology will last forever.
1: They got lost. Well, the battery's on the floor. Yeah,
0: but when you have a huge hurricane comes through, it just kind of turns up the whole seafloor. Gotcha. It's like tilling your garden, but <laughs> even worse.
1: You said you want to make these batteries bigger. You're currently about a watt of pizza which works for sensors and everything, but when I was growing up, I always watched that show, Sequest. <laughs> sure, sure. <laughs> how
0: much bigger are you thinking? Are there any limits to how much bigger they can really be? To step back for a second, the highest amount of power that we have achieved is about half a watt. Yeah. And that was something that required a lot of brute force labor by myself actually to get the devices positioned. So we've backed down on the amount of power and focused on getting devices that could be deployed with no manipulation by divers or ROVs. We're now taking that concept and trying to get to the one watt limit maximum. We think that given the footprint of our devices which they're circular they actually look like Hershey Kisses have about a one meter diameter. We contend we should be able to achieve a watt.
1: Are there any other applications you can see this working? It seems like sensors in the ocean. And of course, what we talked about with the wastewater. Anything in oil and gas,
0: maybe? Really low-power sensors. And I would say even not just lone sensors, but sensor networks. People have visions of wiring the ocean for the ability to know what's going on environmentally or otherwise. If you try to do that with battery-powered sensors, by the time you get your 10th one in, your first one is dead. Yeah, but if it, it can, can be frustrating. Them, yeah. if you have them perpetually generate electricity, then you don't worry about that. You can just keep on going and going and going and going. Sensor networks are sort of our target as well.
1: What really brought about this Research. Did you have the idea? Was there a need for something
0: like this? Well, that's a bit of a story. It comes from an idea and also some desperation. I was a young scientist and trying to figure out how to make my mark and how to jump into something. And somebody had described to me the general phenomenon of what are called redox gradients. You have a very sharp interface in the ocean between a fuel, which is the organic matter, and the oxygen, which is the oxidant, you know, just like a battery. One of my longtime collaborators and I wrote a simple paper that we were funded by the Office of Naval Research. DARPA. At the time, we had no idea about the role of the microorganisms. We thought everything was just being chemical, but then we quickly learned that the microbes play a key role in that. That was 20 years ago, and I sort of lost my career to the point now where I just had a group meeting yesterday of 13 people working for me. What kind of bacteria is making the biofilm most of the time? On the anode, we call them electrogenic biofilms because they generate electrons. On the cathode, we call them electrotrophic because they acquire electrons. The key organism that always appears to play a major Role in the anode biofilms as an organism called Geobacter sulfur sulfurreducens. On the cathode, I'm very proud to say that my colleagues named a genera <laughs> of organisms after me. That seems to be the keystone organism that can accept the electrons off of the electrode, and they call it Tendaria.
1: Tell me about the day when they told you they'd name the genus after you. <laughs> uh,
0: you know, it was it, it, it's exciting, and I get a lot of mileage out of it. But it was maybe anticlimactic because it wasn't like okay, let's have like <laughs> a celebration or something. But it appeared in a journal. I am very touched. Science is an incredibly collaborative and communal endeavor, and it's one of the things I really love about it.
1: You didn't get a certificate or anything? Like, you know, uh, would people get a star named after them?
0: Yeah, maybe I should look that up. I, there are pictures of it, Electron electromicographs in the paper. Wow. It's pretty, pretty exciting.
1: Very cool. And then I guess the next step would be commercialization. And I know you guys are a little bit in front of that.
0: Well, only in that if we can transition it to the Navy, where they're going to want it in high enough volumes, where we have to have somebody manufacture it and sell it back to the Navy. The Navy would be the primary customer. And then secondarily, it would probably be academic institutions and industry that have interest in operating in the marine environment and having distributed sensor networks. One of the things that keeps on coming up, for example, is detecting drug-running boats in the Gulf of Mexico. Yeah,
1: and then one more time, what's your next step to getting it to the point where it would be widespread? Jumping up and down
0: and saying, I have this great idea, <laughs> you know, and I want to transition it. There are no lack of new ideas or applications that we can pursue. I'm pursuing a new one right now from DARPA, which I really can't talk about yet, but it's very exciting, and we just started it for, Your program two weeks ago, which is centered on this device, but for something different. So that's what I can say.
1: Okay, very good. Lenny, I'm going to go ahead. We're going to do a lightning round of your thoughts on different energy technologies. The first one
0: is natural gas. Very useful, but still generates greenhouse gases. Crude oil. Well, I think the word crude says it all. I don't know. You (laughs) know, uh, I'm kind of averse to fossil fuels. We'll see. Keep on going. Uh, Nuclear. (laughs) Well, nuclear is interesting because a lot of people propose it, and I actually served on an expert panel, 15 years ago by the Department of Energy and it was made clear there's just not enough material to power for nuclear power enough uranium or whatever they're going to use to actually switch everything to nuclear coal coal is again another fossil fuel not so keen on it It leaks havoc on the air wind I'm a big fan of wind my house is powered by wind in Maryland we can choose our energy generator and we buy 100% wind power solar same deal low, low carbon footprint compared to the other forms of power generation biofuels biofuels is interesting because my understanding understanding is, is they haven't been shown to be energy positive. It takes more fossil fuels to make them than actually using the fossil fuels directly. But maybe there has been some advances since since I've, I've last read about that. Going into our other renewables, hydroelectric. Also very interesting. Of course, on face value, it's clean and everything, but building dams can wreak havoc on the environment and also has geopolitical implications. Geothermal. Very interesting. I don't know enough about it. It seems obviously that it's a viable solution. I think it's even possible we live in Maryland. Or DC or whatever, you can run pipes down into the ground and get heat transfer. I think it's probably very expensive to implement, but I don't know why. Energy storage. Yeah, how do you store energy efficiently? The benthic fuel cell is tapping into just this immense reservoir of organics and, and oxygen in the marine environment. You can never deplete it. There's an infinite amount of energy.
1: Yeah, I was going to put yours in the energy storage family. Electric vehicles.
0: Yeah, so I have one. It's right there. It's my Volkswagen Electric Golf. Oh, okay. That's electric. Okay. Yeah, full electric. It's my second electric car. I had a Nissan Leaf for three years before. It's it's very low maintenance and it's a blast to drive because once you drive electric, there's instant torque. You step on the accelerator and you just, you just take off. Yeah,
1: I'm starting to have that conversation with the wife about the next car yeah. being that energy efficiency.
0: <laughs> yeah, that's the low hanging fruit that no one talks about. Even here at the Naval Research Laboratory, you know, the lights are on, the instruments are whirling 24 seven and our footprint here is very high. And it'd be great if we could make it more efficient, not just here, but everywhere else.
1: And then finally, I'm taking a break from a conference on this nuclear fusion.
0: Don't know anything about it. I mean, I know, have we achieved it yet?
1: Well, come on back. I think they're still going right still, now. Still debating
0: it. Okay, yeah, I Very good.
1: Might. All right. Lenny Tinder Naval Research Laboratory. Thank you so much for thank your time. You. Thank you. That was Dr. Lenny Tender, research chemist at the Naval Research Laboratory for benthic microbial fuel cells. I want to thank Lenny for his time and Daniel Perry for taking time to set up four interviews with researchers across the facility. All guests are sent the raw and completed audio the week of release. So far, no complaints. Be sure to leave us a positive review on iTunes. That gets the word out. Music was produced by Sean Stroop at Stroop Loops. That wraps up episode 52. Be sure to join us next week when we learn how a small Alabama startup and her founders Making a quick name for herself in the biofuel sector. Until then, I'm Jay Dauenhauer. We'll see you next time.